0: Free Range American Podcast, presented by BlackRifleCoffee.com.
1: All right. Hi. Welcome back. Maybe back. I don't know. Are they back? Did they come back? Hopefully they came back to another one of our shows. Special guest today in town from Washington State, Mr. John Wayne. You might recognize him. No, not the John Wayne you're thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. John Wayne Troxel, uh, the third SEAC?
0: third senior enlisted advisor, of the chairman.
1: Highest enlisted rank ever achieved. So you so you got to the last level.
0: Yes. Got, <laughs> yeah. I uh reached my level of competency. Yeah. You know, the, you know, that Peter principal thing. Yeah, well, I mean, so they always
1: they, I I've always heard there's no E10. This is kind of E10. Yeah,
0: you know, and that's kind of a that's kind of a myth because when you look at the CAC and all the service senior enlisted, because of incentive pays you get for those positions, you're making about a thousand more dollars a month than the average E9. So in reality, you are an E10, even though there's no such animal as an E10.
1: Well, uh, we can just start saying, well, actually. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, that's that's crazy. You've had quite the career. I mean,
1: we can start where uh, you put those parachute wings to use.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a long time ago. 1984, I graduated from airborne school. I joined the Army, not really knowing what I wanted to do. Uh, and when I got in the Army, uh, all of a sudden I saw these guys running around with these maroon berets and these jump wings or these Blackberries at the time, you know. Where, yeah, where'd you go to basic? Uh Fort Knox, Kentucky, in uh September of 1982. And uh and then I I was stationed at Fort Bliss, Texas in the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, and a unit from the 82nd was visiting our training, and uh we were kind of sponsoring them. And there was an officer in there talking to one of our officers, coordinating ammunition and range time and everything. And the enlisted guy was standing outside at parade rest, just rigid. And so I walked out there and I told him, I said, hey, you want to come in? He goes, no, I'm fine out here. And I said, well, yeah, you can come on in if you want. You know, it's air conditioned and everything. He goes, no, there's just a bunch of legs in there. So I don't. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I didn't know what he meant. This is it. real? Said, this is real. Oh, yeah. They were, they were hardcore back yeah. then. Huh?
1: Did so they wear like, maroon berets back then? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I thought I thought that came out when the Army went to berets.
0: No. No, oh. that was long before that. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah.
1: So then it was way different. Yes. It was like Rangers and them.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the Special Forces had green berets. The Rangers had black berets at the time. Then when the, the entire Army went to black berets, the Rangers went to tan berets. And paratroopers have always had maroon berets. So I said, I want to be on that. You know, I want to stand outside, and yeah. not
1: go places where legs
0: are. <laughs> so so uh, I went to airborne school. But, you know, in the Army's infinite wisdom, they spent all this money to get me airborne qualified. And they sent me to a non-airborne unit to Germany. And so then it was time to reenlist. 26th? No, I was or in. First the 1st Infantry? No, this was the old 3rd Armored Division. Oh, wow. Okay. That now no longer exists. B- Buffalo Soldiers. The movie was about that, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, something like that. But uh, <laughs> But anyway, so. I, when it came time to reenlist, I said, I'm either going to be in the 82nd Airborne Division or I'm getting out. And so I went to the 82nd and, you know, all of a sudden it was me, that round peg in that round hole. And I fit in this organization. And that's where my career kind of took Just off. Running
1: on Ardennes was, was what you were meant to do.
0: Talking shit to other people, <laughs> you know, and, and any non or airborne personnel need not even come into our battle space, you know, and everything. And then parachuting into combat and then uh, well, well, yeah. Let's
1: get into the, the lead up to that. Okay. When what rank were you
0: when I showed up there? I was a sergeant.
1: Okay, in and in, in eighty seven. Well, so eighty nine. What rank Staff were you? Staff sergeant. E six. So, so at what point did you get the word that this could happen? Like, how did how did the sequence yeah. of events unfold?
0: So, this. I mean, things were happening. In like, Panama. were you
1: guys on DRB? Like DRF? Yeah, but,
0: but you know. Yeah for historically on DRB, some of my worst drunks when I was on DRF1, because we knew if we got alerted, we were probably going to jump in somewhere and do an exercise, you know, alert Marshall Deploy, (laughs) do an exercise and come home. But the lead up to Panama, we saw things happening in Panama. For instance, you know, a lieutenant was killed down there. Another officer and his family were assaulted by Panamanian Defense Forces or the, the Dignity Battalions that Noriega had. And then we started some more intense training, and it was funny that all the intense training was being done by 2nd Brigade, you know, your alma mater, you know. And and then a week before uh, the jump, DRB switched out, and it became 1st Brigade, and that's who I supported. And uh, in that Monday morning, it was 19 December, 1989, you know, I kissed my wife goodbye, half-day schedule started, and I said, honey, I'll be home at lunch. We'll go Christmas shopping for the kids and everything. And then all of a sudden I get to work and we're going through an alert. And I'm like, these freaking assholes are going to make us do a freaking exercise during half day schedule and right before Christmas. (laughs) And then we ended up over at the personnel holding area. And uh, my platoon sergeant at the time, Dave Freeman and I wanted to know what the hell was going on. So we walked into the Brigade Tactical Operations Center and they were laminating maps of Panama. And we knew then that This is the real deal. And all of a sudden, we went and got live ammunition. We got grenades and everything. And, you know, we're jumping at 500 feet altitude. And all of a sudden, holy shit, this is the real deal, you know? And this was the age when, you know, the alerts, the phone lines get turned off and everything. So there's no way to communicate with your family. Blackout, yeah. yeah. And we just... Next thing you know... So you guys
1: loaded at Green Ramp, up, yeah. at
0: Pope, and yeah. flew straight there? Flew flew straight there. Holy shit. It was, a, it was in a freezing rainstorm, too, JT. It was cold as in shit. In North Carolina. In North Carolina. Yes, freezing nothing. rainstorm. That aircraft had to be de-iced and everything. And next thing you know, um, here we are in 20 C-141s, and we're heading towards uh, Torrios Airport in Panama City. would you guys so refuel? We didn't have to refuel. Oh, really? Yeah, it was oh. only... Two and a half hour flight. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. Central America, brother. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, no but geography's up. Uh, yeah. That. We, and, and, but we didn't do in flight rigging either. We were already rigged up. So, oh, you we, got rigged we, at Green Ramp. jmvi VI, get in. Get in. Wow. This is a jump. Yes. <laughs> and oh, by the way, on the way down there, I got a mortar base plate digging in one leg and I got a Dragon missile jump pack. Digging in the other leg, and you can't move or anything. And I'm just thinking, I don't give a shit what's going on. If there's zsu 234 shooting at us, whatever's going on, just open that freaking door and let me out of this freaking airplane, okay? And I think we all kind of had that attitude. You have a
1: spare missile on you?
0: No, oh. I, I, I had a, I had an M3 grease gun on me, if you remember what that looks like, you know, a little World War, oh, yeah. War II With weapon. The side. Yeah, yeah, the Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I had a nine-millimeter nine millimeter pistol. So uh, well, what's the dragon uh, thing that you had? That, that's you? a, that's a missile jump pack. That's okay. the guy next to me had that. Okay. And the guy on the other side of me had a had mortar. The mortar. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got and it. And all their shit was digging into me because we were, <laughs> we were a combat concentrated load. You know, I mean, normally you had. You're uh, going full Normandy on yeah, this. <laughs> yeah. Was, what, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so the next thing you know, we were parachuting in, you know, and, and, uh, and going live.
1: You guys got hit with ZSUs, didn't you?
0: Some of the aircraft did. As a matter of fact, the lead aircraft were the heavy drop aircraft, and it had our Sheridan tanks on it, our armored reconnaissance airborne assault vehicles. And so when they started taking fire, they dipped down below um, where the ZSUs couldn't traverse. And, uh, you know, they dropped below the recommended drop altitude for the vehicle. So two of the tanks burned in. Uh, (laughs) But... uh, but then, you know, we had the Spectre gunships come in and just mowed those positions of the ZSUs and everything, <laughs> which allowed us to jump, yeah. you know, without, you know, dodging freaking 23 millimeter bullets, you know? So, <laughs> um,
1: so you hit the ground, then what?
0: Um, and training took over, you know, hit the ground, get out of your, put your weapon into operation, and then head to the uh, assembly area. And in short notice, we Did assembled.
1: Steiner aids work. During this, <laughs> you know, we we always joke about
0: that. <laughs> well, yeah. well, you know, I was a guy that jumped in at, with the Steiner Aid in 1988 and I burned in and smashed my head and got medevac and they took the Steiner Aid with me. So, dude, <laughs> dudes are all over Sicily drop zone, you know, trying to find the Steiner Aid. Meanwhile, it's at Womack Hospital with Troxel, you know? <laughs> Um Yeah, Steiner Aids were. So, I think. There's a heightened sense of alertness and awareness, especially when there's firefights going on around you and everything. So uh, getting to the objective, whether that is getting out of your parachute and getting your weapon in operation or getting to the assembly area and then moving out. And for us, we went straight to the uh, Sheridan's and we just started de-rigging. And so I ended up on a vehicle that wasn't even mine and I had a makeshift crew, but my job was to get on it, get a crew, get it fired up and get it up. Onto the tarmac so that we could continue to get after assault objectives. Yeah. So and then we immediately started expanding the lodgment, which meant we came out and started heading down Highway 1. And that's where things got sporty. It was also uh, where we lost our first uh, paratrooper, uh, Alejandro Manrique Lozano, a young specialist in 2nd Battalion 504th Parachute Infantry, was killed almost immediately after we had gotten out uh, of the airfield. Um, and then, you know, there was from then until like the day before Christmas, there was just, you know, going in and clearing and sporadic fighting and everything. And then there would be ambushes and stuff. But, you know, the glory of being an armored reconnaissance guy is that when people shoot at you with AK-47s and and, and uh, maybe AK-74s or something like that, and you're returning fire with fifty cal, Trust me, you own that. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, or, you know, launch a little 240 at them too, you know. So, yeah. But so, th- you guys come home from that. Is there a big celebration? Like,
1: holy yeah, shit, so, uh, we just, we just did it.
0: So, think of all the deployments you've had to combat and all the times we, this was the romantic one we were gone for three weeks Yeah, and then you came. parachuted into but combat you- fought. And then all of a sudden we parachute back into Sicily drop zone and uh, we're done and They make they, you they, parachute back in. Yeah. That's- well, some of us did. Some of us had to come with the vehicles and everything, you know, but they, they had a big ceremony at Typical Sicily. 82nd, damn know. It. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, big- you guys are jumping again. We're yeah. going to get, we're going to get
1: your pace started.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, we had a big ceremony at Sicily and then, uh, and then immediately went on a little leave after that and uh, and then got back after it and the
1: most important question of this did they make you guys camo up on yes. your faces to jump into Sicily.
0: Oh no, no no. We didn't have to, you know, we didn't have to do that. But we were prepared to, you know. We were like, hey, this is the standard and everything. They said, "No, this is a coming home job." you know the rule? You, know, you yeah. pass Long Street, you have to have face <laughs> yeah, paint yeah. on. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I was one of those guys that was freaking enforcing shit like that, you know? You know, especially on an officer that didn't know how to put freaking camo on right. I say, "Hey, jackass, your whole freaking face, you know." So, yeah, but it was uh The takeaways for me there was that if you train uh, to simulate combat, um, then you're going to be prepared for combat, even though you don't have the combat experience. Combat experience always helps, but if your training mimics what you're supposed to do in combat, you'll do the right thing when the time comes. And, and there's always the motivation of somebody trying to kill you that will motivate you to want to kill them. You know? <laughs> so, and you don't have to prepare for that. So that's,
1: that's pretty much at your seven-year mark, you get yeah. a combat patch. Yes. Which is rare right. in that year.
0: In a peacetime. And military. you're also
1: the only brigade in the division that has it. Yes. Oh, God, and that had to be star. fucking hilarious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what, what's interesting? <laughs> there my, was a lot of jealousy on the base, oh, wasn't yes. there?
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> what's worse is out of my platoon, when we did one of the training jumps a week before, my platoon leader was, uh, he broke his leg on the jump. A week later, we jump into combat. Everybody in that platoon jumped into combat except for the lieutenant. So when God. we come back, the entire platoon has a combat patch and a combat jump star. Except for the PL. That, that was tough for that guy. I just know? want to
1: know what it's like you guys running into to other dudes from second and third brigade around base. Because well, there was, had to be a lot of oh, yeah. fights started Well, We would
0: run down our dens and there would be fights. You know, it'd be like, <laughs> you know, hey, three, two, five, you're getting older. Where's your patch on your right shoulder? <laughs> When we went to Panama, where were you? Back here, you know, <laughs> doing whatever, you know. So we had some cadences, and that that led to some, uh, you know, some scuff-ups and stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, but it was all good, you know. Yeah, so where'd you go from there? Uh, so seven months later, I was in uh, Saudi Arabia with Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and sitting. Man, your
1: brigade is just going for it.
0: Yeah, well, you know, in the early 80s, in the 70s, they called it No War 04, you know, for the 504th Infantry. Yeah. But, you know, from Grenada to Panama to Desert Storm, they kind of had the perfect attendance record at First Brigade. So I was with First Brigade again. We sat in the desert, you know, and then during the assault, you know, we were on the western flank. Uh, you know, with the uh hammer and anvil, we were kind of, you know, the hammer coming around the corner there and everything. It wasn't nearly as intense as uh, just cause because just cause was city fighting and everything. And plus we had such overwhelming, uh, force force and overmatch on the enemy. You know, the, the thrill of victory kind of wears off when 12 vehicles are shooting at one Iraqi truck, you know, I mean, you know, okay. You don't get free beer in Davenport, Iowa by saying, yeah, I was one of those 12 vehicles that shot at that one truck, you know? So I was like, let somebody else have the glory here. Okay. I'm conserving my ammunition, you know? So, uh, then, then I, uh, you know, did my first, my second tour in Germany after that. And then I went back to the 82nd and spent a few years there. Two combat patches in the 90s. In the 80s, yeah. Well, 91, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I had been to combat twice in the first nine years of my career. So they want to
1: keep you in the 82nd then at that point.
0: Well, after we came back from Desert Storm, they wanted to get new talent in. They wanted to populate this talent that had two combat tours across the the Army. So that's why I ended up uh, in Germany. But I came back to the 82nd in the mid and late 90s. And then this was when, uh, so I always had this journey to be a ranger and go to ranger school and everything. And because I was a reconnaissance guy and an armor guy, I I never really had the opportunity. So when I came back, I said, that's my number one goal. Now, the first thing the army did is send me to Pathfinder school, which I love. But a year later, I went to ranger school as a 32 year old E seven (laughs) and went straight through and graduated. And, uh, a lot of R.I.s talk shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where have you, you been? Are. Yeah. Where have you been? Yeah. And yeah, but you also
1: had a combat start. Yeah, and, and I had I been to combat, combat twice, and those guys. So said they me. kind of were like.
0: Yeah. All right. So then I made the 8 list in ranger school. So how did they celebrate that? They took my ass to the rope corral in the mountains and the RI smoked the dog shit out of me. Congratulations. <laughs> you made the eight list. Now get your ass back in formation. So, um, they had to the respect to you going through that. Oh yeah. That old, yeah. like, like yeah. Oh, you know what? All right. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what the glory with that was, is that, you know, because I was such a seasoned leader that, you know, I had to deal with these second lieutenants that were, you were used to this. Yeah. And then these PFCs from the Ranger Regiment that were the cockiest sons of bitches on the planet and how to stop these PFCs from beating the shit out of these lieutenants that weren't listening. And sometimes their boots may not be on the right feet, and everything. <laughs> but uh, it was a great experience, you know, but I, I thought at the time I said, look, if I'm going to be because, you know, in the 82nd, you you do a handshake with somebody, they're looking at your shoulder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And if it's you're seems, an E5. Yeah. It's a. Hmm. Yeah, where's your ranger tab? You know? So I said Well, if you're an right, officer, you have to go. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. A- <laughs> well, you know, you have to go. You know, if you don't go, you know, that's okay, but you ain't going nowhere. Yeah. Right? You're you nowhere. You know, you're not going to be in charge of troops or anything. You might be the assistant regimental gunnery officer or some <laughs> shit, you know, but you're not going to be leading troops and and uh preparing for combat. And uh then I was off to the Sergeant Major's Academy and then uh spent uh, twenty years. In El Paso. As, yeah. And i just i was class fifty one and I just recently spoke to class seventy one uh-huh. down there you know and uh and that started my journey for as twenty years as a sergeant major
1: yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so after leaving the academy, where did you go
0: tenth mountain division and uh yeah, and was there two years and spent a year of that in Iraq during you know the invasion and everything. Came back, took over the 2nd Cavalry Regiment, transformed it to a striker brigade, moved it to Fort Lewis, Washington, and then reflagged 4th Striker. Which week. one? Which one? 2-3? No, uh, we were 4-2, four, 4th four, Brigade 2-I-D. Two. Two 2-3 oh. was in 3rd Brigade 2-I-D. Yeah. So then I stood that up. And then with Surge Brigade number four, you know, when you were Surge Brigade number two uh, during President Bush's surge into Iraq. And uh,
1: yeah, because we had a lot of two, three guys and yes. four, two guys come over to us to help
0: us. Yes, absolutely. Uh,
1: yeah. I worked with both.
0: So, you know, our, our battle spaces were contiguous. So we were right next to yeah, each we other. Ordered. Yeah. You go, we were north. You were, or no, you were north. We were, we were north. Were south. You were south. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you went into Baghdad. We were on the outskirts of Baghdad, Tarmia, places like that, but, uh, still fighting the same in them, you know, yeah.
1: uh, we were like, you go to our roof. We were 800 meters from the intersection of Grizzlies and gold. So the oh, yeah. border of solder.
0: Yeah. But, and that was right at the edge of our, our brigade battle space yep. between second brigade 82nd and fourth striker brigade two yep. ID. Yeah. So, uh. So, I mean, there was some crossover there. There was a, uh, you well, know, they
1: wouldn't let us go into solder unless we had strikers. Yeah. So they would send the strikers in the
0: seconds, 2nd Battalion, 3rd Infantry out of 3-2. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So then after that, I came back. I was the uh, Sergeant Major of the Armor Center uh, for a while. You know, that that's folks- at Bliss. No, that was at Fort Knox. Oh, OK. Yeah. It's now at Fort Benning, Georgia. And then uh, after that, I took over as the Army. used to be a command called Army Accessions Command that was all about marketing the Army brand. It had the Golden Knights in it. It had uh, the Army Marksmanship Unit. And then it had uh, you know, the, uh, the brigade that had all the Army trucks and the Humvees and everything to get after recruiting yeah. and stuff. I did that for a little bit. Then I went to First Corps at Joint Base lewis McCord. Was the sergeant major there spent a year in Afghanistan as the I, ISAF Joint Command, Command Sergeant Major. Came back from that U.S. Forces Korea for two and a half years. And but then were I mean, you in Korea? 2013 to oh, 15. Yeah. There and were then some uh, good guys over there then. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um spent a lot of time with 7th Air Force and down at 8th Fighter Wing, you know, and uh, uh 51st Fighter Wing and stuff. So but uh and then November 2015, General Dunford selected me to be the third SEAC. And in December, I replaced Marine Sergeant Major Brian Battaglia. Did you have a previous relationship with him or was this no. all
1: interview package, <laughs> so everything?
0: I take that back. I did have a previous experience with General Dunford. They When I returned from uh, Afghanistan, the ISAF position, the four star level position, uh, was opening up because uh, Sergeant Major Tom Capel. Was retiring and Dunford had been selected to be the ISAF commander. So I interviewed with Dunford for the job, but he didn't select me. So when I hear this all the time, senior enlisted leaders complain about, well, I'm not getting selected on these slates or anything. And then I try to tell them, well, look, brother, it's, it's like being in the mafia. It's not personal, it's business. And they would say, well, you made it to the SEAC. I said, yeah, but I was on nine slates throughout my career. My record was five and four. And one of the guys that didn't select me was a guy named Dunford who selected me to be the SEAC. So you can't <laughs> take it personally. It's how that commander feels oh, about what me. he wants right th- that that's everybody's
1: everybody's yeah. optics and goals are gonna change every year. Absolutely. Like, yeah. like, you know, you might hit somebody on the right one that's that that comes into that leadership position and says, I want to work on enlisted education. And yeah. you've been you've been championing that. Oh, this is my guy. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. I want to work on combat effectiveness, and this is the dude that's loud about that right now. Absolutely. I want him, so it's always going to change. That one right there—that was me. Yeah, All right, combat, you know, combat effectiveness. Yeah,
0: okay. We're we're gonna we're gonna kill the fucking enemy. Bottom line, you know, <laughs> um, that's what we're here to do: defend our freedom, our oh, homeland, we'll and why, way alive. Why is it so
1: refreshing to hear that these <laughs> days? <I'm> just,
0: <laughs> it's pathetic.
1: Yeah, that now we can't even say that in the military. Yeah, I'm i uh,
0: I'm a little concerned. Uh, I think everybody is, you know, that, uh, you know, I still, when I retired, I thought my days of getting in front of troops and everything would be over. but I travel as much now, even through COVID. No, it's I was probably more important than ever yeah. because you have to actually, and now you can drive home the messaging
1: without someone telling you no. Absolutely, <laughs> I don't have to have a filter now, which is no. the good thing. You can just say, right. "Hey, I'm I'm off base at this club. If you want to hear me speak,
0: <laughs> yeah." Or, but you know, I you know, like I said, I was just at Bliss talking to the Class Seventy One. I've spoken to seven Army divisions in the last nine months. I've been to about eight Air Force bases talking to troops. So I don't have to have a filter, which is the message that the troops love, but I also don't have any authority. So if the leadership doesn't appreciate my message, they can say, get your ass out, you know? But they keep inviting me back because I give a perspective that we should be thinking about now. And that is the sole reason that our military exists is to fight and win our nation's wars. And that means we have to focus on lethality, readiness, fitness, and cohesion. And anything that comes before that is a something that is going to take our attention off of what we should be doing. And when you look at this great power competition with China and Russia, they are hoping that we take our eye off of them and focus on what's going on. They want on in us term. to implode. Yes. Yeah, They're yeah. like, "Well, why? Let's let's get them to fight each fight themselves Absolutely. rather than us having to fight them." And you look at the number of bots and trolls from Russia or China that go on the Internet and pose as other people, or they just look to create chaos within the American people and within our military. They'll continue to do that through election periods and everything, and they will continue, which is why we took U.S. Strategic Command that was responsible for cyberspace and nuclear And we split those three areas up, and now you have U.S. Cyber Command, that's a combatant command, U.S. Space Command, and STRATCOM only worries about the nuclear enterprise now. But we made three strategic commands out of this to get after these emerging domains in in combat.
1: I've got a a Navy friend of mine that works at the Navy Cyber Defense. He's the head of the Cyber Defense for the Navy. He was like, you would be- you would be floored if I could tell you what goes on every
0: day. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, will, I will tell you this. Um, when I was the SEAC, there were some young E4s in the cyber domain that were doing some things that were causing some pretty damaging stuff to some of our adversaries. And, uh, and it, was, it was having an impact. You know? You'll never hear about that because of the secrecy of the organization and everything. But uh, when I would see an E4... Basically, playing video games and hammering somebody, some nation that's trying to, you know, impose on our freedoms. I'm like, damn, this is some good shit, you know? (laughs) And that's what we should be focusing on. Yes. Is how to impose costs on an enemy below the threshold of conflict. I mean, cyber is an offensive weapon, might be, you know, an act of war. But if uh, the North Koreans, the Iranians, the Russians, and the Chinese are using cyber weapons against us, then damn it, we better reciprocate. So that we can maintain competitive advantages. <laughs> <laughs> well, so
1: when you were the SEAC, what were your pillars of focus uh, during during that time?
0: So any senior enlisted leader, their focus is driven off of, you know, what their boss's vision and priorities were. And for me, uh, the vast majority of my time as a CAC, I had General Mattis, Secretary Mattis, and I had General Dunford. So you know, the troops call him Mad Dog Mattis, and the troops called Dunford fighting Joe Dunford. And that's what they, they were war fighters. And I will tell you, JT, this was probably the most uh, precious two years of my career, being around leaders like that. And when Mattis came in, you know, he brings me into his office. The first thing he did after he got sworn in, his first meeting, 20 January 2017, he gets sworn in on a Friday, 23 january monday morning he has breakfast with me in the service senior enlisted and the first thing he tells us is the word we are going to use to associate with what we're going to do to any enemy of the united states is annihilate it's not defeat anymore it's annihilate and i was like that is so refreshing you know that (laughs) basically he's saying they want a shot at the title with the united states we can all be some fighting mfers here tonight and we're going (laughs) to annihilate your ass you know and uh and then after that He hadn't forgotten being a former four star, how to use a senior enlisted. So, you know, I spent most of my time out visiting the troops on my own, Uh, some of it with Dunford and some of it with Mattis. But everywhere I went, my focus was the same. The vision and priorities of the chairman and SecDef and the administration was about being lethal, ready, and fit. And and especially after President Trump, you know, and Kim Jong Un had the little, you know, tete a tete uh, and the fire and fury speech came out. Now, all of a sudden, it was get this force ready to fight in North Korea. And when you look at the number of forces we would need to have that, um, it is huge to exercise an operation on the Korean Peninsula. And so then that's when we started looking at the fitness deployability of the force. And what we had found is we had a huge problem with this, you know, And, and then we had a huge problem with obesity in the force, you know and so that was one of the things Mattis told me hey I need you to get after this stuff you know but the bottom line everything that I was doing was associated with war fighting and giving the pulse of the force to General Dunford and Secretary Mattis and there was a couple times Mattis would write me back when I would give him a report and say thanks for this I'm including this in my comments to Congress or whatever and so I knew that I was getting after but as the Act, nobody tells you what you're supposed to be doing it's It's kind of, you should know. Exactly. Dunford even told me, he said, look, if you're going to wait around for me to tell you what to do, you're going to be waiting four years because I expect you to know what to do and go get after it. That's why you're the SEAC now. And so that's what I did. I spent 270 days a year on the road.
1: Did you surprise visit people? Because you know that You didn't? No. Why not? Well, you know how it works. Yeah. Oh, he's coming. Hey, they polish everything up oh, and I know. Don't let don't let him talk to him and don't let him talk to him. It's always prepared.
0: Well, even dude, to your point, I go to Mogadishu, Somalia, to visit an elite Navy Special Operations Unit. And the Master Chief meets me uh at the airfield and picks me up and he says, Hey, I just want to apologize for the beards and everything. I said I could give a shit less whether you have beards or not. I'm not here to make sure you got clean underwear on, dude. I want to know what's going on with Al-Shabaab here. How are we getting after, you know, building stability in Somalia, building these uh, Somali special operations forces that can take on this fight and everything. I could give a shit less what you wear or what you're doing. Did he appreciate that? He loved it. (laughs) He loved it so much he invited me back, you know, And, uh, and as a matter of fact, He took me into Libya, too, so uh, uh, to see some of his other guys. But the point in all of this is, this gets after some things that a senior enlisted gets painted with, you know, that they're about painting rocks or haircuts and cigarette butts and everything. When you're the strategic enlisted advisor to the chairman and sec def, you, you can't go to a place, and this happened to me one time, I tried to never do dormitories and barracks because... I, I I wasn't there. That service senior enlisted stuff. It's important, but it wasn't in my portfolio. And guys would want to come in and make me complain to me about mold in the barracks and the dormitories. And I'm like, look, I'm not going to go back and tell General Dunford and Secretary Mattis, we got a mold problem at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and we got to get after the forget about all this stuff that we're trying to do, you know, to the Russians and on the Middle Euphrates River Valley in Syria and everything. This is I would pass that on to the sergeant major of the army and say, "Hey, look, you need to deal with this." Yeah, but, that's more him. Yeah, hey,
1: hey. Yeah, that's service. They're, stuff. Liver, they're, they're living. Yeah, yeah. The service.
0: Yeah. So uh, I, uh, I focused on, you know, a message that in a, a guy in an army uniform, his message better resonate with people in different uniforms. And so when I would get on a, an aircraft carrier and have a, a and all hands with five thousand sailors in the the freaking hull of it. I better send a message that's inspirational, relevant, and that they can walk away saying, yeah. So, you know, I didn't come in there and say, hey, look, you know, here's this education model and everything. Don't get me wrong. It's important stuff. And there was some of that that I had to do, but I had to send a message to them that would resonate. And that's when I would, you know, do the, that's kind of where this surrender or die shit started. You know, when Mattis kept talking about annihilating and and I would put it in terms that young A1Cs or PFCs or Lance Corporals can understand. And that's, hey, we're going to continue to drop bombs on the enemy, shoot them in the face, or if need be, we're going to beat them to death with entrenching tools, you know? (laughs) And uh, that's where that kind of took off. And and it landed me in hot water, but I truly believe (laughs) uh, in what I was saying. And that was the first. Oh, because
1: God forbid we talk about killing somebody with a shovel. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, you know, a Washington Post reporter told me that I was advocating for war crimes, for troops to commit war crimes. And I said, look, we train soldiers, Marines, and battlefield airmen how to use nine standard weapons to defeat threats and neutralize threats. So look at our doctrine. Don't freaking try to go down a narrative that gets after your, you know, more touchy-feely and everything. In the end, I don't care how, how the actual character of conflict is going to change, and it will, but the true nature of it will never change. And that is the will of one people to defeat the will of another people, whether that's Americans against terrorists or Americans against Russians or whatever it is. And in the end, we can't be touchy feely around that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, So, with your focus being strictly on lethality, which, God, we need that back. Yeah. What were some of your big wins that you saw during that time? So,
0: we started a close combat lethality task force. We wanted to look at um, how to continue to make Uh, leaders at the squad level, platoon level, company level, how to make them more lethal, how to make them more advanced, how to give them the tools that they could continue to see first, understand first, act first, and finish decisively. That was a great thing. The other thing we looked at is this brain health thing at the OSD level. We started uh, a panel and, and everything to look at that. and. You know all of the back to back to back to back combat tours, but that troops had. But not only that, all of the live fire events that troops had. We never really had a an apparatus that would look at how many times has a guy been around a Carl Gustav after it fires, or how many times has a guy been around uh, explosions or stuff like that, or artillery firing or whatever it was. So we started looking at these things to get after a more holistic approach at physical, mental, and emotional wellness and readiness. So if we had problems in the physical domain because people were broke or they weren't fit or anything, because you don't have that uh, foundation of physical fitness, it would spill over to mental and emotional fitness. When somebody's out of shape and they're fat and they're expected to do an event, it is much more easier for them to quit because... They haven't conditioned their bodies, which doesn't allow their mind their mind and uh, their emotions to be conditioned. So, huh. yeah, so I was getting after that, which is why I was always on the fitness thing and always on tying what we were doing, the fitness. The other thing is Mattis was the guy that uh, spurred this human performance focus with those things that I talked about. That kind of genned up this
1: new gyms for all the special operations units, yes. having... Personal trainers and stuff at these elite units and yes. things because that's completely changed in the yeah. last five and years. And now it's going
0: to end, the general purpose force is going to get the same thing. You know, um, like the Air Force True North program that is there to mimic, you know, some of the things that Air Force Spec Warfare has done. You know, and the same in the other services. So, uh, yeah, that that was, you know, kind of the way that things were going. You know, and so that was my focus. And those are the big wins. The other thing is. I expanded education to enlist it and you know there's a joint forces staff college in Suffolk Virginia that teaches a, a myriad of courses but one in particular was joint and combined warfare warfare school and I asked a question to the the, uh, the dean of the school I said why aren't we sending enlisted these are all field grade officers that are learning about joint and, and combined warfare why aren't we sending senior enlisted to this You know, him and his staff, they just kind of gave me the loser salute, like, hey, we don't know why we're doing. I said, well, we're going to do it now. And so in the course of my time as a SEAC, we had over 50 E-7 to E-9 graduate from this course. We weren't trying to make officers. We were trying to make better advisors to officers on the art of warfight. And I will tell you, the Air Force was the ones that the Air Force had more graduates from that school than the rest of the services combined. So guys like K-Wright and that they just jumped on it. And uh, and it was no wonder that all of a sudden you saw more Air Force senior enlisted leaders at combatant command level because they understood joint and multinational warfare. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, what,
1: was there anything that you passed on to the next, like something that you didn't finish or something yeah. that you wanted to get to that you were like, I want to see this happen?
0: So- uh, it took me three years to get it right, but 10 days before CZ and I switched out, I finally got the CAC rank approved and the Army version, all of the service versions. And so 10 days before I'm retiring, General Milley pins it on me, you know, and he says, hey, look, uh, you ain't gonna be able to wear this for very long, but it, at least you can be buried in it, you know. But the point was CZ from the day one that he walked in, he transformed from being a chief master sergeant wearing the rank of CAC and the title of CAC but one of the things I wanted to do that pay thing you know that e10 kind of pay um, the CAC and the service senior enlisted uh, had it but the combatant command guys who were working for a four-star who were direct reporting units to the Secretary of Defense they were getting nothing and so one of the things I was continuing to focus on and CZ has taken it on is getting that paid disparity amongst the combatant command guys, get it up to where they belong. And the other thing is the joint enlisted leader development model, a complimentary model to service professional military education. I kind of started that CZ's kind of taken off with that and taking it to places that I wouldn't have thought of taking it. So yeah, there was a couple of things I left over, but he's jumped in and he's got it now.
1: Well, so for any of the people out there watching that um, that are currently in serving right now, enlisted that are aiming for this sort of career path, what do you have for them as far as
0: well? I call how, it,
1: how to start as an E four to get to where you got.
0: I just think every day you got to look for ways to be better tomorrow than you were today, and and you can't get if you say I am happy where I'm at in my career. Uh, you have just signed on to be complacent and uh and potentially be passed by by your peers so i think as a leader starting from about the e4 all the way up to the c act there's three things you have to do every day and you've got to be present so wherever the points of friction or the key events are at that day you got to be there you got to be actively participating in it you got to be persistent uh persistent and making sure we're getting after the things that need to be Gotten after the lethality, readiness, fitness, and that you have this balance between discipline and compassion in how you're dealing with people and building a cohesive unit. And then you got to perform as a leader every day. You know, when I was a first sergeant back in the 82nd Airborne Division, I came out of my orderly room one day and I was pouring down rain, and I'm getting ready to go on a run with all my platoon sergeants. And next door was the aid station. And I see the senior NCO standing underneath this overhang where he's dry. And he's making this kid out in the rain do freaking push ups. And I said to myself, How is this guy ever going to gain the respect of this young troop? Whatever this troop did wrong, he's like, This asshole is sitting under there dry as hell, and I'm over in this mud and everything. So I immediately went over and told the guy and made a scene. I said, This is the biggest, you know, bullshit I've ever seen. Get your ass out there. And uh, so next thing you know, all three of us are doing push ups in the mud, you know. My point to it was, you want to, change behavior then you better do it through your example and no better way uh to to lead showing by strength
1: is not standing it's not in the standing dry in the with dry. a coffee cup yeah. yelling at somebody to do something Whose but you but you outperforming yeah. them in front of them so
0: that's where I'm, you got to be <laughs> present you got to perform you want joe to do something then you better be willing to lead by example and share in the hardships that they have to share so that's that's kind of my focus every every day and then As a leader, understanding whatever your span of control is, there's going to be varying opinions, there's going to be varying uh, cultural differences, there's going to be varying backgrounds, but your job is to arm yourself with all of that and build this cohesive unit that leverages the diversity of the organization and is inclusive, and everybody gets treated with dignity and respect, but there's no imbalance in discipline and compassion. You treat equally rewards and punishment. And all of it is designed to build this lethal, ready, fit force. And I will just tell you that uh, being a nice guy all the time uh, is not going to get you there. Just my opinion, you know.
1: Well, so what is your what is your kind of perspective and, and opinions on what's going on now? I mean, you know some of these guys. Too. Oh, I know,
0: I know, <laughs> I, I know a lot of these guys very well. I just, uh, again, I as I said at the beginning here. I have some concerns because, you know, the secretary of defense writes a message to the force and he talks about some key things in there. China is a pacing challenge. Um, We are going to deter Russia, North Korea and and Iran, and we are going to look to disrupt terrorist networks. Um, I have concerns with that because we should be looking to neutralize and destroy terrorist networks. And in my opinion, China is not a pacing challenge. They are an adversary and they are an existential threat to us. And nowhere in there did he talk about fighting and winning. And I think again, the core reason the three million men and women serve in the active guard and reserve is to be able to fight and win and defend our nation, our homeland, and our way of life. And words matter to well, the truth. We got
1: complacent. I don't I think agree. we. I don't think there. I think there is a large number of Americans and politicians out there that don't. See that as a reality. They don't see an occupation or invasion or an attack as a reality.
0: Yeah. Well, and when I hear words like, you know, it's China's core focus is to unite Taiwan with them, using the word unite in that context, <laughs> you're talking about China invading a sovereign country, depending, you know, the Chinese think there's 195 nations in the world. We think there's 196 because we recognize Taiwan, but saying unite when that would mean defending a sovereign country and taking it over as your own, you know, I, I, that's conquering. Yeah, it's conquering. We haven't done that in a couple hundred years. (laughs) And, uh, and then when, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. Do we have challenges with sexual assault, sexual harassment? Yes. Do we have problems with, uh, racism? Yes. So I think you have to get after those, but focusing on that more so than focusing on your core task, which is to build lethality, readiness, and preparedness to fight and win on any given day, under any setting, anywhere in the world, uh, that's a problem. you know. And I don't think as a leader in the military that you have to all of a sudden say, dang, I have to look internally at myself to see if I'm leading the right way. If you've been doing it for like me, 20 years as a sergeant major, I never changed my leadership philosophy. I wasn't going to all of a sudden, because we have some social injustices going on, going all of a sudden going to say, well, Troxel needs to re examine who he is as a leader. You know, no, no. If you are confident in your abilities to lead, you have been given the tools and you more so, you've been given the autonomy to get out and lead, then do what you're supposed to do, build a cohesive team. That leverages everybody in the organization and get them ready to fight and win. And when we take away from any of that, we are eroding competitive advantages to people like the Chinese and the Russians. How many
1: times have you been invited? Zero. (laughs) Okay, so I just want to make a note right now that both the Army and Air Force service leaders have completely lost the the people. Yeah. So my point in asking that question is, why are they not looking to the people that had the ear of the enlisted? Why are they not looking to the people that had the respect of the enlisted and yeah. saying, hey, teach us? Because honestly, I don't see either the Army nor the Air Force. Those two did not have that natural ability. Yeah. So they need all the help they can get.
0: Yeah. And- and I'm friends with both of them. I, I respect them both highly. But I will tell you this. Um, when you get into a position like that, whether you're the CAC or the service uh, senior enlisted, and I'm not passing judgment on these two. But the worst thing that can happen to you is that you get selected for this critical job. And all of a sudden you think you're God's gift to leadership in that. uh uh, and then the other thing is, is that you pay attention well, to positional
1: much. leadership at that point. Exactly. They're they they, they are going to use that position and that's all they have to to lean on. And I've seen it from both of them. Yeah. It's just, well, this is my rank. Yeah. You know, if you have to say your rank, you've already lost the, the Absolutely. argument. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and so and then you start paying it. If you pass judgment on anything that happens on social media in that position, regardless of what it is, you are potentially splitting the force, and then if you're you're passing judgment on something that you are not uh, fully immersed in the facts on, then you're really setting yourself up. And I say this all the time, you know. If you, I hate to draw political lines, but if if forty nine percent of the nation voted for Donald Trump to be reelected, then there's probably a like number in the military. Maybe even more, you know, because of the nature of the military. So the bottom line is, if you're trying to build a cohesive force, then you have to be uh, your themes and messages have to be able to uh, resonate with those on either side of the aisle. You know what I mean? So it's got to be focused on, you know, the entire force. And you can't get caught up in a message or a theme that is being driven from the administration or something like that. In the end, as the CAC or as a service senior enlisted, you got to sometimes go in and tell your bosses. For me, it was the chairman and the SECDF that, hey, I think we're going in a direction we shouldn't go or something like that. We're going to lose them. Yeah. Or, you know, this is how it's going to affect the troops, you know. Um, so, again, I think uh, one of the things I did as the CAC is there's 35 news agencies within the Pentagon press corps plus or minus. Some of them come and go, but but I built a relationship with all of them. And I didn't say, hey, I'm going to go on Fox News and I'm going to do an interview here. Or I didn't go to CNN and say, I'm going to, I would go in front of the Pentagon press corps. And more importantly, I would take the service senior enlisted leaders with me twice a year to do a press conference and the combatant command senior enlisted leaders. I wanted to give what was going on to the force, to the entire press corps, whichever side of the aisle they were on and i think that's how you build relationships with those kinds of people that are based on face-to-face conversation and facts chances are when you do have a gaffe of some sort which i had plenty of them uh it doesn't get uh sensationalized because people know who you are and what you are when they don't they'll pass that's judgment yeah. yeah and and you're right Hit piece. And, and if if you say something that would only resonate with half of the force then you're going to lose the other half you know and again both of those folks are good friends of mine I stay in touch uh, with them but
1: uh it just blows my mind no one there's not a regular basis for just the churn like like sharing information yeah. and lessons learned like yeah. where we we do this everywhere yeah left seat right seat hey let me let me go back and and ha- have the guy that that had this position come in and and yeah. and show me some some things he learned like it's like why aren't you using your tools yeah because these are yeah. these are all positions that the 0.00001% of the 1% there's only a handful of people a room full of people that have ever held these some of them better than others but yeah. it's like there's no book for it right So why why are you using your tools to call on the guys that did it very well and say, "Okay, let me learn?
0: Well, I think there is a bit of as I was talking earlier and I'm not again, I'm not passing judgment on anybody. But when you get into a position like this and if you're reaching back to people that had the job before you. It's healthy. It's healthy. But in your in, in some leaders minds, it can be perceived as weakness. That I'm have to reach out to somebody that had the job before me, you know. What do you call the, then, the
1: manual that you that well, you resort to? That yeah, was
0: yeah, someone that
1: did it before us. But know? now,
0: if somebody that had the job before you, and if you're in the business of providing best military advice to the SecDef, the Chairman, and the administration on the pulse of the force, and somebody that had the job before you reaches out to you and say, "Hey, you need to focus on." Uh, financial portfolios, because some troops may have marijuana stocks in that, you know, and uh, and then, hey, you need to let the chairman know and you need to let the SJA know. And I'm thinking to myself, I am not going to embarrass myself by walking into Joe Dunford and saying, hold the phone, chairman. We're getting after marijuana stocks. As and E4 perfect. has some marijuana stocks. Yeah. I, my point in all of that is <laughs> um, that might have been the way you did business before, but I understand my environment, and if I went in to said something to Dunford like that, he'd be like, "What is this first sergeant coming in here telling me this <laughs> shit?" You know. And, and jokingly, a couple months later, I told Dunford about that, and he kind of laughed. He said, "Yeah, I need to get with my dang broker because I may have some of that shit." You know? <laughs> so, so the, the the worst thing you can do in those positions is put yourself where you are splitting the force. But even worse than that is. If you are wrong, not not admitting you're wrong, because you're continuing
1: to split the force. Mill, I mean, Millie's words last week. It hurts cohesiveness. Yeah it it pulls leaders' ability to to govern their their units out from their legs out from under them. Yeah, it completely just dumbfounds some people to of confusion. Yeah, you're 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 creating confusion of people yeah. going. Wait, what? Wait, now we're jumping into this political thing?
0: So, you know, to that point, if you're, it can't be that it's okay, reading is okay if you can read to learn about Marxism or critical race theory and all these other things. But then if we're saying that's okay, then if a a leader is reading the book Mein Kampf uh, to try and understand what a totalitarian fascist madman was doing to build a nation we shouldn't pass judgment on that you know what i'm saying if, if one saying, standard yes, applies
1: across the board
0: absolutely and and if all of a sudden we're reading a book about stalin or something and how he he massacred 7 million jews you know we shouldn't say oh all of a sudden you're you're supporting that or anything you know to to millie's message if we're saying it for critical race theory and Marxism and all, then we'd better say reading and learning is okay, regardless of what you're reading. We shouldn't pass judgment on somebody just on the basis of that. I don't like the passage. I world. agree with you. When <laughs> I heard that, I was like, I, and, it I, and just she, unravels the,
1: well, I would have went to framework. Said,
0: chairman, I, you know, again, when you look at what happened on 6th January, it was wrong. Absolutely was wrong. But how many military people were associated with that? What three? Three, I think it was. I, I could be wrong. But then if we say that's wrong, then we, in the same breath, better say the f- multiple firebomb attacks on the federal courthouse in Portland, the 100 nights of violent protests, the illegal annexation of the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle and Cal Anderson Park, where three teenagers were killed. Set a standard. We better say that's wrong, too. And that all forms of extremism, regardless of what happened on Capitol Hill or it happened in Seattle or Portland, all of that is wrong and we're going to eradicate it out of our force. That's the message that the troops need to hear because now they don't have an argument. No, now it's like, hey, I got okay, it. Okay, here's right, here's wrong. Yeah. Not. And, yeah. We're going to ignore
1: this, but if you do this, Yeah. But, but that, we're ignoring that. Yeah. Same thing absolutely. over here, but we're ignoring
0: it. Yeah. And, you know, and I live in the Antifa belt, you know, between <laughs> Seattle and Portland. Okay. And, uh, and I've seen what's happened out there, you know. And so as a leader, I think one, you got to know the facts. Two, you got to know your audience and your audience is, is the entire force or maybe your entire service. And you better send a message that resonates with everybody that they say, okay, I got it now. It should not be a message that, this is what we're going to do. And if you disagree with that, even though you might be 49% of the force, then you better get in line and focus on that. That's why it's an art. And there's nothing more powerful than the art of leadership in our military.
1: That's, that's wild. It's crazy times right now. Yeah, We, we, don't, we have no clue where we're going. We yeah. don't even know who's at the wheel.
0: Yeah. He's asleep. Well, you know, the other thing, you know, JT, is when I talk to leaders, I asked okay what's the military definition of extremism and I had one senior enlisted leader that is a senior enlisted leader of a very very important joint command and he said it's ambiguous at best but the vast majority of leaders that I talked to about that even some minority leaders they say it's slanted in one direction you know that we are looking to eliminate white supremacists and we're trying to get rid of this rid of this white rage and everything and I will even Ask people wherever I go and do my leadership seminars, how many of you have ever met a violent extremist? Because a violent extremist, in what you and I have done in our careers, is ISIS, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Now we're using that term for people in the military. And where <laughs> is the evidence that shows that we have a systemic problem of violent extremists within our ranks? Um, and when I ask people, hey, how many of you have been associated with folks like that? The vast majority of them say I've never, never seen one. Now, I was in Fort Bragg, North Carolina in 1995 when the young black couple was killed by two jackass white supremacists, but those were two jackass white supremacists. That was not the 18,000 paratroopers of the 82nd Airborne Division. We did a comprehensive look and everything and found that this was not a systemic problem within the ranks of the 82nd Airborne Division or within There's the military. Yeah,
1: of two jackass.
0: Yeah, of two jackasses that were, you know... The the ideology that we're following was coming from off the installation; it wasn't coming from on the installation. So what we learned is, hey, we got to continue to be engaged with our troops at all time. And I will tell you, if a, if an NCO is going into the barracks or dormitories every day, sooner or later they'll find any kind of racist or extremist propaganda. They'll, they'll make something. I mean,
1: uh, I I even heard it from one of the one of the. Uh, Uh, Combatant command leaders that you were talking about, we were talking about yesterday. He had called me and said, as they were walking around, they came they came across a a poster or a symbol of something, and 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 the the officer was like, uh, "Is that offensive?" (laughs) And he's like, "I don't know, I don't know what it is." It turned out to be like some Star Wars symbol, but there was this argument of, "Is this a racist symbol?" And then it's like they finally get the kid. He's like, "No, that's from a video game." They're like, "Oh." Oh, okay. but there's they're looking for it. They want it to be it. Yeah, that has to. I don't know what that is. That has to be racist.
0: Yeah, (laughs) well, and when you have commanders at all levels, you know, uh, like a commander at at, uh, Fort Carson, Colorado, you know, quoted as saying, you know, white people are the problem. When you say something like that, you have just destroyed the cohesiveness within your organization. And then with his follow-on comments, when he said, "Hey, if somebody comes to them with a racist complaint, I will believe them ninety-nine percent of the you time." You just yeah,
1: that's you, it you
0: The cohesion in your organization is gone. When a leader says something like that, they they have just destroyed the camaraderie and and basically the combat effectiveness of that organization.
1: 100%. You know, you've completely unraveled every NCO's power. Yeah. Like-
0: now, don't get me wrong. Do, are there racists in the military? Yes. Are there maybe some extremists in the military? Yes. But I don't think it's as systemic a problem, if, if it is a systemic problem, as it's being made out to be. And the last thing we want troops and leaders is to be chasing ghosts within their ranks. Well,
1: the one thing that that commander said that stuck out in my head is after they had even defined what it was, he asked the question, well, could someone find this offensive? Why is that the question we're asking? Yeah, yeah. Let's move on with our lives. Absolutely. Like that is just, oh, it, that's just a disgusting form of, of thought. Yeah. Of like, just, just stop, stop. Yeah. Could someone, could someone find this? It's like that's what I mean. It's like we want it. We want to find. Hey, yeah. what is this? I don't know what it is. It has to be racist. Could someone think it's racist? Yeah. It's like, like once, it, once it's like they they wanted it so bad. Yeah, and they keep reaching. It's like it's just. You know, and I look
0: at my own life, JT. I've been married to a a first-generation Mexican American, whose father came from Chihuahua, Mexico, for almost 38 years. Uh, I've been married to a minority. I have been immersed in the Hispanic culture. My children, you know, are part Mexican. My grandchildren are are part Mexican. The vast majority of my friends are minorities, and never once. Have I had to have a conversation with, you know, one of my minority friends to say, hey, look, you're my exhibiting uh, traits of a racist, you know? And what I would think is if they choose to be my friend, you know, <laughs> and I choose to have them as my friend, then neither one of us has any freaking racist overtones about us. We just respect each other no, as we people.
1: have invented and manipulated and created this definition. And, yeah. and and got people to think you because you even see it now you've got people to to now admit oh oh because i parked in a different spot i must be racist yeah. you know or i walked across the street like like you you have these people now just admitting these really stupid things like yeah it's like uh i agree i'm done
0: i'm you done know, and this is one of the things i do so my my youngest granddaughter uh is she's whiter than i am even though you know my son is half Mexican, she's whiter than I am. And every day that they come to visit my house, I take her and I show her pictures of her great-grandparents and grandparents on both sides of our family. Because I want her and I want all my grandchildren to understand that were it not for her great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother from Mexico, she wouldn't be here right now. But also, she will be judged by her skin and said that she will have white privilege as she's grown up when her bloodlines come from Mexico. And so I want to make sure that she understands and all my grandchildren understand where their heritage comes from and to be proud of it. Be proud that one grand set of grandparents are Caucasian. Be proud that other set of grandparents are Hispanic. Be proud of that and leverage that. But you don't have to raise kids to be self-loathing because... Their their skin color doesn't match what a social narrative may be. I'm, I'm with you, brother. <laughs> so, what are you doing now? Where so, can people uh,
1: find you and ask you to come speak things like that? So,
0: um, I have my own consulting company, PME Hard Consulting. PME Hard is a word that came up when we were in Iraq, and I saw how out of shape those Second Brigade 82nd guys were. No. Yeah,
1: <laughs> no. yeah.
0: No, I saw, and you, and you live this. We're wearing 100, 120 pounds of kit every day in 130 degree weather. And I noticed that the train up that we had to prepare for those kind of conditions, um, that our PT wasn't necessarily where it was at. And, you know, I would be out on patrol and here I am in my middle 40s and I would be taking a knee with a platoon and some of these young troops would have to bend over because their back was killing them and everything of wearing this kit. And. I learned as a leader then, I prepared myself for these kinds of conditions, but I didn't do what a leader should have done. I should have put the same standard on the men and women in my formation. So PME hard means physically, mentally, and emotionally hard. Now it's my consulting company, and it's about providing leadership and human performance solutions for organizational excellence. I've worked for nine different organizations as either a brand ambassador, a strategic advisor, or a consultant. I'm also part of seven foundations, and I continue to look for ways to give back to the institution known as the United States military that gave me so much for almost 38 years of active duty and also taking care of our veterans. Um, you know, we have 18 million veterans in the United States. Only 9 million are, are enrolled in VA healthcare. Only 6 million are actively involved in it. And I think when we talk about this 22 a day, uh, some of that uh, contributing factors to that is that uh, these veterans don't have access to health care and a benefit that they earn from their service to their country. So I do a lot of focus on assisting veterans as well. So I stay pretty busy, but I take time to spend it with my wife and, uh, and my grandkids and everything and still enjoy life, still get after the PT, you know, and uh <laughs> You know, got used to the hills out here on the road outside uh, the studio here and everything this morning, but uh, just trying to enjoy and still um, be focused and assist where I can.
1: Where can people write you or message you or anything?
0: So they can go to my PMEhardConsulting.com, my webpage, or they can reach me at jtroxel at PMEhard.com. Also, I'm a member of the Flatter Inc. Uh, speakers bureau. So if they would like to have me come speak, they can either go to PMEhard.com, which will take them to the Flatter webpage, or they can go to the Flatter webpage itself and uh, they can book me there. So uh, I've got plenty of trips coming up. And if if somebody wants me to come and speak, I ask them to give me about four to six months notice because uh, when I get done with this trip here, I'll be out at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio, with some airmen. And then uh, I'm off to Fort Knox and Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and then uh, Camp Pendleton, uh, uh, oh, California. Yeah.
1: Well, you have to go see the coffee shop while you're in Clarksville.
0: Oh, I will. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for coming out, John. This was great. Thanks, brother. Take I you appreciate you, man. Yeah. <laughs>